The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. A global COP28 deal stands on the brink of failure after the draft agreement removes a call to phase out fossil fuels, sparking uproar among some delegates, including Germany's foreign minister. This text is clearly insufficient and disappointing. The text is far away from what the world needs for a turning point, missing the tools we need to keep 1.5 degrees in reach. Wall Street posts a three-day winning streak, with the S&P 500 managing to defy declines from all of the magnificent seven tech stocks and to close higher. Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky lands in Washington, D.C. for talks with President Biden and congressional lawmakers to press for a fresh funding in the war against Russia. We're going to get the view uh, from EU Council President Charles Michel. That's coming at 1000 CET. Elsewhere, Google loses a landmark antitrust case to Epic Games as a federal judge finds the tech giant intentionally imposed barriers against developers in its Android app store. And Chinese fast fashion group Xi'an reportedly holds talks with the London Stock Exchange over a potential listing in the UK, despite having already filed paperwork in New York. The latest draft of the COP28 climate deal has dropped language referring to a phase-out of fossil fuels. It instead lists options countries could use to cut emissions, including a reference to reducing fossil fuel consumption and production in a, quote, just, orderly and equitable manner. The draft text has faced widespread criticism with the so-called umbrella group of countries, including the US, UK and Japan, saying they believe the deal is too weak. Now, European ministers in Dubai joined criticism of the draft deal. It is clearly insufficient and not adequate to addressing the problem uh, we are here to, to address. And that is not because just we want it, the minister I want it or the Europeans want it, because scientists are crystal clear about what is needed and on the top of that list is phasing out fossil fuel because there is a direct causality between doing that and making sure we get the earth we get people out of harm's way we seeing that there are elements in the text that are fully unacceptable that in fact it is not so clear it's not clear at all how we can uh, proceed in these critical decades in the energy field. And uh, we think that it could be good to have clarity if we really want to make out of this COP what the world needs and to make out of this COP what it was supposed to be, a turning point in our climate fight. The need for urgency to replace and reduce fossil fuels in the power sector in this critical decade is completely missing. The language on coal contradicts EU energy policies and it allows for new coal power plants. Most of all, the context on 
fossil fuels misleads the world. It suggests that fossils can continue to play an essential role in our future. This sends a misleading signal to our businesses, to our markets. I don't know where to start on this um, because it's been something that's been such a huge part of my professional life mm. since Le Bourget, uh, COP21 in November, December 2015. Uh, and so much noise and so much energy goes into the final communique where people get very, very exacerbated by it. And we heard there from three very passionate European politicians that this is just unacceptable not to have a phase out of fossil fuels. Now, I feel myself wanting to say, oh, I agree, it's, it's outrageous. We should have fossil fuels. It should be in there. Uh, sorry, should, should have language on fossil fuels in there about getting rid of unabated fossil fuels. And we've talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks from, from when I was in Dubai with Dan. But I'm strangely torn on this one. And I'm trying to be, and I know you're going to get criticism from both sides of this one. So I'll just explain what I mean. The language in the communique is important for many people, as, as Annalena Baerbock just said there, in terms of the messaging. Mm -hmm. It is very important in the messaging. But in terms of the actual action that countries can do and will do, I think it's less important. I think the symbolism is very important, so I'm less exacerbated by that. What I'm more animated by is the other acronyms out there, such as the NDCs and the GST. And I'll make a, just a brief point on this one. The NDCs are the Nationally Determined Contributions. Everybody has their own plan, as of 2015 onwards, about how they get to market, how we get to net zero, how we get to a level of industrial activity on the planet that keeps temperatures below two degrees, ideally to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. So it's up to countries to come up with their own plan, regardless of what the top-down language is. So my point is, and I don't know if I make it very well or not, and I can expand for hours upon this, mm. is that what really matters is what countries actually do, rather than what a communique says. And unfortunately, I mentioned the other acronym, GST, the Global Stock Take. It shows that regardless of the language about fossil fuels, countries have not done what they said they would do. Whether you're the European countries, whether you're the Chinese, whether you're the US, some of the biggest emitters in this world have not moved swiftly enough as they promised they would do, regardless of the language. So I'm, I don't know, this sounds terrible, but I'm less excited or worried about this language on fossil fuels than I am about the actual action that countries have taken and will take from yeah. here on in. And let me pick up on that point around action because I think there's perceived failure for some. It sends a message that the clock is not ticking and I think many feel as though it is. Time is running out. If you look at the communication that's come through from a group of countries from Australia, the US, UK, Canada and Japan, they've all said there will not be a co-signatory to death certificates for small states, small island states. So they're concerned here with a with lack of any ability to address fossil fuels. And these are countries that have a fairly huge demand for fossil fuels because of the industrial nature of the, these countries from the US sure. to Japan sure. to other countries that produce the fossil fuels through the minerals that they extract, being Australia and Canada. So major nations here wanting to see some form of change because we've got this rising sea level that endangers the, the very well-being, the, the uh, existence of some but, of these island smoke states. smoke and mirrors. It's smoke and mirrors from these nations because there is no global law that would come, at, no global treaty 
that would come out of this communique that would say you have to get rid of fossil fuels. There's nothing binding, but there is nothing binding. At so, which so, point, so it doesn't matter. Then so why can't those same countries who are making all that noise about these horrifically endangered Pacific island nations, mm. why can't they go their own path and say, regardless of what we're not seeing in the top-down communique, why don't we get rid of fossil fuels ourselves? Why don't we go down that route ourselves? And they can, but you can flip it on its head if it's, if it's but, not but, binding, but say if, if it's can, not important. But, haven't, but, but if it's not binding, why not put it in the communique? Why not have a global target because for everyone if it's not binding? Very many dis uh, different, well, for the same reasons that actually India will be allowed to use coal for longer than others, for the same reasons that actually other emerging nations are getting a pass when the developed nations have been the ones who are the greatest emitters all time, because there are different rules for different countries, because there are different stages of development and different parts of the blame game which should be attributed to them as well. The point is, all those nations who are hammering in about this, and we cannot sign this as well, why don't they just move ahead and join together, have their own treaty, you're allowed to do that, you have your own treaty with anyone you like in the world and say, right, we will go ahead and we will not buy um, Saudi oil. We will not buy US LNG. We will not buy gas from Russia that has had a tortuous route so we can get around the rules pretending that we don't use Russian LNG because everyone in Europe is still, well not everyone, but a large number of countries are still using as much LNG from Russia as they have always done. The point I'm making is it's action, Karen, not some silly communicator well, that everyone can agree to in a to, hairy, fairy world. Give me a chance to argue the other devil's advocate side, and I think we've already had a playbook for it. You know, we've had a war where it has shown us that energy security is significant. Uh, the, ma the market is much more fragmented now, so getting access to certain product and certain categories is, is much more difficult now. We've seen that around the gas story. If there's a, a problem in one part of the world, it impacts the European but, gas but market. Karen. I think there is a view now that unless you have everybody working towards the same goal, it means some countries have better access, they have better terms, Karen. better economic prospects, perhaps at least short term, because they're getting a, a more favourable deal. And I think that's the problem, that everybody if you're in it together, you've got money that is motivating off the sidelines to come up with solutions for a global economy that also brings down the cost of some of these projects. And we've just seen solar, wind, key projects that started out a few years to look fairly economical, now not being economical yeah, that, because of inflation, not, that, because of other true. issues. I, can, I know a number of projects. Well, I, I, can, I can give you any number of experts who say, including uh, the boss of Axiona, who I had on my panel the other day, who is one of the biggest buyers of energy on the, in Europe. And he said, I can tell you in any part of the world now, renewables complete brilliantly with coal, if not better. I will get you Mr. Antra Canales. I'll get him on this show for you to tell you that we're that you're wrong on that. Well, but let's do it because I've seen projects that <laughs> we've been we'll talking about. Sound. Let's try, we'll because find the, the sound escalating costs of the equipment that goes into yeah. these projects, as opposed to the cost of the equipment that goes into fossil fuel projects. Let me tell you an example of why I think you're wrong as well. I, and look, I love this debate, and, and look, we, I'm not right, you're not right, but I'm just saying I believe you, that you're wrong on this one as well. Is when you talked about the European energy security problem, do you know what happened? That, that we all of a sudden permitting for an LNG terminal in northern Germany that was due to take five years, a public uh, consultation on that, and brilliantly, we got our LNG from the States and from all over the world. And, uh, do you know how long that permitting, that five, the, 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 the five-year permit conversation for uh, public consultation took? Because, right. because there was the political will to, to shore up supplies. Mm. Five days. They cut it from five years to five. Boom, done. So all of a sudden, fantastic. Germany moved aggressively on regulation and permitting. Well, look what we can do when we really want to. Uh, but then the wind and solar industry, the wind industry especially said, hang on a second, 
Why didn't you cut our permitting from five years to five days? Why didn't you share or tear up the regulations for us and we could have provided you with the same energy, if not more, cheaper and on site rather than you having to import it if you'd have done the same for our permitting? And that is the same problem time and time again, that permitting and regulation in Europe has thwarted the ambitions of the industry because of nimbyism, because people don't want a wind farm near them as well. They don't want a solar farm near them as well. So it's all very well tearing it up for the fossil. What This is my point about action rather than lovely fine words from Annalena Baerbock. Annalena right. Baerbock knows that she can cut immediately the permitting for renewables if she wants to. This is Annalena Baerbock, who is in a coalition government that is now facing a challenge well, from parts of the country so around go. energy so security, what go. the German industrial policy looks like. So it's so not a problem to communicate, it's a problem with the form survival, of government in Germany. But it's survival. So so the, the outcome could actually be well, this was a whole series This was long in advance of politics. the debt break problem that Herr Scholz is having. Yeah, this but, was but you've already seen the, the fragmentation of politics in Germany but, away from a grand coalition where the point. far left, far right and various different parties are now making mileage around the energy security you, story, industrialization. I think so you're agreeing I, with me. You're, no, you're now I, saying I don't think I it's am. the politics in Europe that is stopping the progress rather than some communique that makes a, a reference to phasing out or phasing down of fossil fuels. I you're saying it's the domestic politics, politics that are the problem. more airtime. If there was a global accord and a global direction, it would perhaps steer away from these domestic political but situations the that are cropping isn't up. going to stop the Chinese from building more coal uh, facilities. It may help. If everybody's heading in the same direction, it may actually China's help. are moving ahead on their own direction, well, regardless well, well, of the goals. regardless of whether the communiques phase down, phase out or not. It's about NDC so, action okay, from so bottom you're saying, up. saying, you know, net zero by 2050 doesn't work. Are you saying that I, I doesn't work having a goal? I didn't say that in the slightest. Well, this is my no, point. So, so the same to say, to say, well, exactly. Chris I never so, said anything of the sort. No, so I'm asking you. So if, if you think goals don't work, then I you would say, say all the these... But this is the whole point around signaling and having a goal, having a common goal. communiques don't work. What, hap what works is when we have action on NDC. There's a misunderstanding here of what actually goes on at COP. COP isn't about top-down uh, forcing you to do something. COP is about bottom-up action from nations. That's why in COP21 where I was at and COP26 I was at, it was all about the NDCs, your nationally determined contributions. You as a country set your plan to get to net zero yeah. as well. It is not about being told from the top down, oh, this is the individual action you've got to take. You've got to take this action, this action, this action. It's I about individual countries doing the action. But what you just told me then, categorically, is that individual countries, including the most important economy in Europe, can't do it because of the political system. Yes, and this is the point. So you want. So why worry about communicating when you can't to look raise, after your own you're house? Missing the point. You want the countries to rise above domestic politics because there's a common goal. This is like having net zero by 2050, for instance. Having, having goals by 2050, 2040, 2030, it makes a difference because you get money motivated off the sidelines to key projects where it makes it possible for countries anyway. to move in the same direction. Have you seen but it's still the other not parts about tripling renewable energy capacity globally and doubling the global? global average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements by 2030. That was agreed by everyone. I think we're going to have to differ on this point because we're basically killing every other segment we've got pencil really. I, I think I'd prefer to talk about not killing the planet rather than killing every segment, well, but there you go.
I don't disagree with you, but we are not solely in charge of the show and the producers have put this together for us. So let's uh, just take a look at what we've got on markets. And you can see that uh, we had a lot of action on the boards to the upside again. The market rally continues, modest upside, four-tenths of a percent, the S&P 500, for instance. And again, just inching around these fresh records that we continue to see for the trading year. Four-tenths up on the Dow, two-tenths on the Nasdaq. So again, the positioning for the Dow, the Magnificent Seven, which is why you're not seeing the tech story rally as hard as the Dow. Magnificent Seven stocks left out of this rally. Important actually to see the breadth coming back into the markets because every time you have a rally, there is a question as to just how enduring it will be. And what has been a very big feature of this market has been the extension of some of the tech gains we've seen, but just not in session yesterday, despite the green on the chart. So investors looking elsewhere away from these big names, 2.2 down on Meta, Tesla in reverse, Amazon down 1%. And you can see the Cupertino giant Apple down about 1.3%. want to take you to treasuries. The market's focused on auctions uh, that uh, were apparent. Investors were not buying treasuries in some of the auctions. A thinner liquidity, a real feature here. The U.S. consumer price data is going to be key later on, and also the Fed. 4.20, so we just drifted off the high level, though, on that yield. I want to take you to the dollar as a result as we get set up for a big day today. You can see uh, cable and euro both perched high versus the greenback, which is on the back foot uh, versus a number of pairs and crosses this morning, including dollar-yen. That is uh, despite the fact that the market is now fading the prospect of the Bank of Japan doing something this year. But, uh, Steve, it is about the, the data later on today. Yeah, about this climate. No, I'm joking. Uh, let's move on. Um, we've done that one. Uh, traders will be watching out for today's consumer inflation print in the United States, the last one of the year with Dow Jones analysts forecasting a flat reading for the month, putting the figure at 3.1%. Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? Flat figure on the month, putting the figure at 3.1%. Incidentally, you might want to take a look at the core. Slightly unsettling for those of you who want big rate cuts in the first half of the year. Uh, there's a raft of central bank action this week as well, with the Federal Reserve kicking things off stateside with its policy decision on Wednesday. Before a super Thursday, we'll get updates from the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the SMB and Norge Bank as well. We have a guest who's happy we wrapped up our last segment. David Sequeira is with us, Chief US Market Strategist at Morningstar. David, thank you for joining us. We are setting up for a data point. The market's watching very, very closely. We had the non-farm payrolls report last week that showed a little bit of heat in various different points from the headline number to the unemployment rate drifting south and also in the wages component. So inflation now on the back of that number scene is quite key. What are you doing as you waited out for CPI? Yeah, well, that is definitely the wild card this week is that CPI print. You know, of course, if it does come in hotter than expected, that could put some pressure on the Fed to keep rates you know, higher for longer. But in our view, we don't think it's going to be an issue. You know, we were very comfortable with the personal consumption expenditure index. Yeah, that's the one that the Fed really is keying their inflation expectations on. So going into this meeting, you know, we're expecting, you know, no hike. But I do think we're going to start seeing that ongoing shift in the language, you know, not only in the statement, but more and more in Chair Powell's, you know, answers to the questions during the press conference. And, you know, that's something we've been noting for the past couple of months. You know, I expect to hear, you know, more discussion regarding the economy and the economic outlook and less discussion on the need to fight inflation and keeping monetary policy as restrictive as it is. And really, this is just part of our time frame. You know, we are in the camp. We do think that there's, you know, going to be a cut in March. So in order to get there, you know, during the January meeting, yeah, I think they're going to have to, at that point, really start signaling their intent 
attention to the market, you know, to start thinking about what exactly it is they're looking at in order to put them in position to loosen monetary policy. And then we're in the camp. They'll make that first rate cut in uh, March. And at that point in time, we're also looking that they may start easing uh, their quantitative tightening program, too. David, you are ahead of the market at calling out a March rate cut. But can I ask you about positioning here? Because yesterday we saw the Magnificent Seven stocks left behind. In mm-hmm. fact, it was consumer staples sought by the market. What is this telling us about market breadth and the ability for the market to rally further from here? Well, I think you should get used to seeing that. Uh, you know, in our view, you know, coming into this year, the Magnificent Seven, you know, six of those seven stocks were four or five star rated stocks. You know, our ratings that indicate that we thought that they were pretty significantly undervalued. But you know, after the run that they have had, you know, five of those now are all in fair value territory. They're all rated three stars. You know, only Alphabet is the last one that we think is still undervalued. The parent of Google, you know, that trades at a four star rating. It's about a fifteen percent discount to our fair value, and we think. Apple's run up, you know, too far this year. That's a, a two-star rated stock that's trading, you know, well above our fair value. So where we do see, you know, value in the marketplace today, with the market, you know, only being a couple percent, you know, discount to our longer-term fair value. We do think that like the value category is going to be the best place to be. We see value stocks trading at a 14% discount to our fair values. So I think that's where you want to be overweight in today's market be market weight core or blend stocks. Those are trading in line with the market average. And at this point, I'd actually be underweight growth uh, that is trading at a premium to our fair value and especially be underweight tech. You know, tech has moved up. It's now trading at a 7% premium to our fair value. So I'd look to uh, start selling a lot of those tech stocks that we think, you know, even in this past you know, month and a half coming off those October lows are starting to get to be overvalued and overextended going into the new year. David, what am I missing? Uh, Many things, obviously, but uh, good morning to you or good evening. Um, What am I missing here? The U.S. economy just grew at 5.2 percent. Average hourly earnings were better than expected. The unemployment rate was lower than expected. The uh, weekly jobless uh, figures are very stable, if not low by historic standards as well. We've got core inflation circa 4 percent, headline inflation just 50 percent over the headline target. What am I missing that we're going to get cuts by March? Well, when I take a look at all of those things, yeah, I would say that one, we do expect that the U.S. economy is going to start slowing and it's actually going to be slowing you know, pretty rapidly. We're only looking for you know, about 1.7% GDP here in the fourth quarter. So you know, a big slowdown as compared to last quarter. We're looking for it to slow again going into the first quarter down to a 1% increase on a year over year, sorry, on a annualized run rate slowing to under 1%, seven-tenths of a percent in the second quarter, and slowing to just above stall speed in the third quarter before it starts moving back up again. So as far as the economy goes, we're still in the no recession camp. We're still looking for that soft landing, but I do think the Fed really does need to take a look at, you know, just how much the market or the economy really is slowing down. Uh, In our view, we do think inflation does continue to keep moderating. You know, a lot of the categories which really propelled inflation higher over the past, you know, 18 months, you know, still continues to subside. Our U.S. economics team is looking for a 2% you know, average uh, inflation rate next year. So I think when you start combining a lot of those things, you know, I think the Fed at this point is in pretty restrictive territory with their monetary policy. And personally, I think they probably want to get ahead of the economy slowing, start cutting rates now, getting to more of a neutral rate in order to make sure we do have that soft landing next year. Okay. Um, Is there anything that could happen in the rest of the world that will upset the apple cart as well? 
let's be brutally honest, the other side of the Pacific doesn't look too great at the moment. And we used to worry about ATMs in Cyprus. Now we don't worry about mass unemployment in the youth sector in China. Yeah, I mean, global you know, geopolitics always could, you know, put some pressures on what the Fed, you know, may or may not do. But, you know, at this point, we are really kind of focused on our inflation outlook, our economic outlook, you know, looking how both of those are starting to moderate and slow. And so, you know, we're still on board. And, you know, to some degree, it's almost a coin flip when you look at the futures market as far as whether or not we do see that first cut, you know, coming here in March. David, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate the time. David Sakira with us, Chief U.S. Market Strategist over at Morningstar. Did you hear that apparently they've got to put two breaks together because you went over in the first chat? <laughs> it was all me. <laughs> <laughs> the length and breadth of my It was like the old days, wasn't it? It was. I like it. <laughs> Coming up on the show, we're going to hear from Kazakhstan's Minister of Industry and Construction, Kanat Shalapayev, that first on CMC interview coming your way next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. A global COP28 deal stands on the brink of failure after the draft agreement removes a call to phase out fossil fuels, sparking uproar among some delegates, including Germany's foreign minister. This text is clearly insufficient and disappointing. The text is far away from what the world needs for a turning point, missing the tools we need to keep 1.5 degrees in reach. Wall Street posts a three-day winning streak despite declines across the Magnificent Seven as traders turn their attention to today's CPI print and upcoming Fed decision. Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky lands in Washington for talks with President Biden and congressional lawmakers to press for fresh funding in the war against Russia. We'll get the view from the EU Council President Charles Michel at 10 o'clock CET. And Google loses a landmark antitrust case to Epic Games as a federal judge finds the tech giant intentionally imposed barriers against developers in its Android app store. Let's take a look at the U.S. markets. Uh, the Magnificent Seven not playing in the rally yesterday, and we still got to fresh records to the upside for the trading year. What we've got, two tens up on the Nasdaq, four tens on the S&P, and the Dow climbing by four tens. It was uh, consumer staples in focus, not communication services this time round. And don't forget, a lot of event risk this week. We've got uh, the market focusing on the CPI numbers today. We could see the core still climb to that 4% mark, but it's a signaling we're going to get for the inflation numbers that are beginning going to be quite significant. Don't forget uh, the numbers around non-farm payrolls last week. Not exactly what the market had wanted to see from the labor force. As we rounded out a fairly significant week on the jobs front. So the inflation numbers, all important today. And of course, the beginning of the two-day Fed meeting. So at this stage, uh, it's still a market that's ready to bounce. And the question is whether it will still feel like that after the inflation numbers later on. Third positive session in a row so far. To the oil markets. 
The early trade, 71.85, we're marching higher on WTI, three quarters, 1% to the upside, and on Brent. You can see it's not been a great trading week, still weaker as we take stock of a longer time frame. But in the intraday period, we're up just over six tenths of a percent. So uh, commodities seeing somewhat of a bounce today. I want to take you to the Asian markets, again cautious as they also wait for clues from the US markets around inflation and around the Fed. Uh, the big news out of the region has been just whether the Bank of Japan is also willing to start its exit from extraordinary monetary policy in any significant way. And there seems to be a view that any rate hike might be a story for 2024. The market cautious today. We've got 50 odd points to the upside. Stocks out of uh, the Hong Kong market. One of the standouts of the region, a rally of more than 1%. So we're up a third on Shanghai and half of a percent up on the ASX out of Australia. To the opening calls, and this is how we approached stronger across the board. We're chasing green arrows, as you can see, from the FTSE here in the UK across to the DAX. Uh, that's got 31 to the upside and stronger signals for French and Italian stocks as well, Steve. Right, Karen, thank you. Uh, as Karen and I may have been discussing at the top of this show, it'll be another contentious day in Dubai after a COP28 draft deal sparked widespread disagreement not just around this desk. Uh, over the last two weeks, we have spoken to officials and CEOs about what they hope to see uh, come out of this conference. It is for the negotiators uh, to finally agree. Uh, are we going to see phase out uh, over time? Yes, it is just inevitable. What we know is with today's technologies, we can achieve 85% of our objectives, those I talked about, how much we need to cut, uh, within this uh, decade. But we know that to get to where we have to, to be, there is a need of new technology, some under consideration, some, some to come. What we ought to be looking at is how do we get from where we're at today to a future with lower emissions. And that involves step changes in some areas. It certainly involves wind, solar, and EVs. But it also involves decarbonizing what we currently have. There are options today to start reducing the carbon intensity of the existing fuels pool. We can make a much bigger reduction in carbon at a much lower cost, much quicker than waiting to swap out the entire vehicle fleet. And so stay focused on, on the problem statement of emissions, keep your mind open to a variety of different solutions, and make sure the work that everybody's putting into this is focused in their areas of strength so that we can make the most reduction the quickest. The abundance of renewable potential uh, right across the world is huge. So we've got to capitalize on that. But if we can't even get to a point where we're talking about phasing out or even to the point of talking about phasing down in an agreement in COP28, I'm afraid uh, that, will seriously, uh, that will seriously leave questions hanging about whether COP28 has been a success or not. Kazakhstan hopes an agreement with the European Union on critical minerals will help drive sustainable developments in energy uh, trans and energy transport. Now, Kanat Shalapayev is the Minister of Industry and Construction for Kazakhstan and joins us now. Minister, thank you very much for joining us. We've heard of the recent discussions that you've had with the Europeans and those discussions continue about the role that Kazakhstan can play in the supply chain in Europe, particularly around critical raw materials. 34 listed by the EU, Kazakhstan produces 18 of those critical raw materials. Just flesh out for us the role that Kazakhstan can play in Europe. Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, we had a, um, a very productive discussions with our European partners uh, earlier uh, around mid-November during the Brussels Raw Materials Week. And uh, indeed, Kazakhstan can a, a play uh, um, a vital role as a, uh, a critical materials uh, uh, supplier. As you rightly said, 
uh, out of the 34 materials on the European critical mineral list, Kazakhstan already produces 18. I think there's a, some qualification probably needed in, um, um, uh, in this regard that uh, typically Kazakhstan is, uh, uh, is viewed as a, um, a resource-rich country, but uh, in case of critical materials and some of the rare earth, Kazakhstan is already a viable producer of the of the critical materials we can uh, we can of course talk about copper where we a very material player in the global market but beyond that uh, beryllium tantalium niobium even uh, titanium we already supply to the european union uh, the work we're doing for example in one of the metals like rhenium right which is used in the air turbines uh, um, uh, uh, has been has been very successful, and uh, we already a substantial producer of, of the materials. So for us, I think the 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 nature of our relationship with our European partners is is both is a uh, um, uh, provider of the critical materials, but also we can um, uh, help to to recycle some of them, and and the production facilities that are available in Kazakhstan. Um, uh, already assisting some of the European companies to uh, um, uh, 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 to recycle uh, materials and obtain critical uh, critical minerals again right. through, through recycling. Thank you, Minister. Can I ask you about how reliable a partner your country can be when you've got Russia and China on the border? Given what we've just seen with Russia and the war in Ukraine and the constant saber rattling by China against Taiwan, how much of a reliable partner can you be for Europe in that context? I think um, uh, this is a very good question, and uh, as you know, um, Kazakhstan has already been a very reliable partner for the uh, European energy stability. Right, so um, it is widely known that in uh, in uranium, Kazakhstan's been a very reliable partner uh, for many many years for our European partners. Um, in the uh, 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 even in oil and the conventional or carbon energy sources, we have proven to be a very reliable partner uh, partners, and I think that reliability fully extends to our critical minerals capabilities as well. Um, I think from uh, our standpoint, having already proven to our European partners that are we reliable partners in, 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 in sources of energy, we can be also a reliable partner in the, in, the, in the critical materials. And I think Kazakhstan's track record speaks of, of itself um, in terms of the um, uh, other minerals that we supply. And I don't think uh, there should be any question about our reliability in, uh, uh, in the critical materials space. So in, in more traditional materials, there is an accusation that Central Asia is being used as a transit for Russian products to get to the West and for Western products to get to Russian. Uh, if we look at the trade flows that have gone into Central Asia and Kazakhstan as mainly part of that uh, since the start of the Ukraine-Russian war, volumes have gone up absolutely dramatically, leading to accusations that you're used as a bypasser uh, for sanctions. How would you respond to that, sir? I think Kazakhstan's been very clear on the on the policy with regards to sanctions, right? Kazakhstan uh, is not being used and will not be used to circumvent sanctions. Um, the um, key distinction here that I'd like to make, so historically, uh, if we look at the at the um, um, uh, growth and volumes that you just referred to, historically, 
majority of the European goods were reaching Kazakhstan through other countries, uh, including Russia. And right now, what happened is, is the adjustment in trade flow led to Kazakhstan exporting European goods um, uh, directly from Europe. And that's why our uh, European Union has been collectively, the, uh, all countries within the European Union, um, uh, remain our biggest trading partner. And that, that, that has been um, um, this, uh, like this for, for a while. And uh, not surprisingly that some of the European partners still want to have access to Central Asian markets. And Central Asian markets are most easily accessible through Kazakhstan. And that's part of the reason that we see um, uh, a continuously stable trade flows with the European Union. Um, in terms of the, um, um, uh, that, that's, that's what uh, we can say in terms of the trade flows. Thank you. So going forward and, and just building on the conversation, we have my colleague Karen here in terms of the amazing resource opportunities in your country as well. Do you find yourself do you feel that sometimes you're at the center of a tug of war between the West uh, and indeed China as well for uh, the sourcing of these raw materials for, amongst other things, the electric vehicle industry as well? Many people paint it in the West as a battle for those resources between China via its BRI and other initiatives uh, and indeed uh, a slowly moving West, which is having a realization that if they don't be more proactive, then China will have pretty much a dominant position. Does it feel like that from a Kazakh point of view? I, I think uh, what's important to Kazakhstan in this case is that uh, we have been maintaining very stable relationship with our European and Western partners. And um, uh, as I mentioned before, we've proven our reliability uh, uh, to all our counterparts. And um, I don't think that there is a... Um, um, tug of war argument can be applied here. What I believe in is that uh, Kazakhstan has, as a country, has certain interests, including economic interest, and uh, for the interest of people of Kazakhstan and, and uh, for the interest of the country, we should maintain viable partnerships um, uh, with our partners. I don't think the um, tug of war argumentation is probably uh, appropriate in this specific case. It is more that Kazakhstan needs to develop its own industry, uh, needs to earn its place in the global carbon transition supply chain. Right. And uh, to that effect, Kazakhstan is making a, a very significant effort, in, in, including work with our European partners. Minister, can I ask about the significance of ArcelorMittal then closing its Kazakh unit, uh, the sale here that was encouraged by the state to state and QIC. There were fatalities over years at this ArcelorMittal site. What sort of ESG message does that send if the state couldn't work with a major company here to ensure that there were not problems over the years? I think um, uh, the um, exit of Arcebor Metal has been premeditated in some in some ways by the track record that you you've just uh, you've just mentioned. Unfortunately, um, the the safety record has been um, uh, uh, somewhat questionable over the years, and uh, uh, we encourage all the investors in Kazakhstan behave responsibly. And uh, I think. Uh, uh, most of our global partners and investors in Kazakhstan has uh, seen a, a, a tremendous FDI uh, flow in the uh, in this in the past year. We 
uh, we have achieved a $28 billion dollar uh, uh, benchmark in the in the foreign direct investments uh, last year. Uh, and uh, the investors that are uh, socially responsible and environmentally responsible, of course, will always have a, um, uh, uh, a very um, uh, constructive environment in Kazakhstan. Um, I think the, with regards to the RCOR METO transaction, this was an amicable exit. Uh, the um, uh, RCOR METO um, uh, sold its Kazakhstani unit. It's not being closed down. Uh, the, this is the only steel producer in Central Asia capable of producing up to 4 million tons of, of, of metal every year. And um, Kazakhstan's government uh, is um, uh, keen on uh, keeping that enterprise going. Uh, and of course, uh, improving its uh, safety record and improving its uh, environmental record as well. Minister, it's been an absolute pleasure taking uh, a time to have a, a good look at what Kazakhstan is doing today. Thank you very much indeed for taking our questions. Uh, Kanat uh, Shalapayev, who is the Minister of Industry and Construction over in Kazakhstan. US President Joe Biden is set to host his Ukrainian counterpart, President Vladimir Zelensky, at the White House later today. Ahead of that meeting, Zelensky is expected to hold talks with the Republican House and Senate leaders. Congress remains divided over the Biden administration's proposed additional $60 billion worth of aid to the war-torn country. Meanwhile, EU leaders are set to meet in Brussels later this week, with further aid for Ukraine topping the agenda. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, however, threatening to block the proposed 50 million euro package. Sylvia, uh, he's blocking again a unified front uh, on Ukraine. That's right. And this is a very important moment for Ukraine. Of course, you just mentioned you have Zelensky in the United States. And then it's also a crunch moment in the EU when it comes to potentially disbursing 50 billion euros of support to Ukraine. As you mentioned, so far, Hungary is blocking this package. There's been conversations over the last couple of weeks where officials told me that they could come up with an agreement among the 26 heads of state and therefore circumvent Hungary's position. But that, of course, would not look good. It would show that the EU is not united when it comes to supporting Ukraine. But of course, that plan B is actually gaining more traction as we head to a European summit later this week where this is going to be essentially the big topic for the heads of state. Let's see how these conversations throughout the week and then during the summit will evolve. But indeed, there's a lot of pressure on the EU to come up with support at a time when the US itself has not yet um, approved further financial disbursements to Ukraine either. So there's a lot of pressure here. There's a lot at stake. And yesterday we actually heard from the Ukrainian Foreign Affairs Minister, Mr. Kaleva. He was in Brussels and he said, that if there is no support from the EU, there will be ramifications on the bloc itself. They could lose unity and credibility. So a lot at stake here from a European perspective too. There's also talks on uh, the, how Ukraine can join uh, the European Union. That will also be a topic of debate at the summit. And Hungary is also blocking any sort of developments on that front as well. So once again, let's see how this will evolve, but we will have a, a chance to speak to the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, later on this morning and understand really what's the state of play at this stage as we approach that very important summit, guys. Uh, thank you for the coverage. And of course, uh, Mr. Macron's got his own problems as well, back at home as well. So more problems uh, 
uh, at the centre of Europe. Thank you. We'll come back to this later on. Uh, Sheen has reportedly held talks with the London Stock Exchange over a potential listing in the UK. This according to our sister channel Sky News, which says the company's executive chairman met with LSE executives during a visit to London last week. Last month, it was reported that the fast fashion company filed confidential confidentiality confidentially for an, there you go, uh, for an IPO in the United States. Uh, Sheen was once valued over $100 billion, uh, more than rivals H&M and Inditex combined. A federal jury has ruled unanimously that uh, Google's in Android app store benefits from anti-competitive barriers following a lawsuit filed by Epic Games. The verdict followed a four-week trial that focused on the payment system with Google's Play Store. Epic Games claim the tech giant charged excessive fees and prevented alternative payment methods. The judge on the case will now determine the penalties and next steps. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.